0: Hello everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss whatever does not fit into a sermon. And this episode follows the message from Judges chapters 1-5 through 5, entitled, Oddities, a Lefty and a Lady. Today, we're going to talk about the missing fourth step. But before we do so... Let's summarize Sunday's message in 60 seconds or less. Go. Do you consider yourself odd that you don't exactly fit into the world? Good news. God is odd too. Now, Israel didn't like that, so they tried to be normal. So they had this cycle in the book of Judges where they sin, they suffer, and then they need to be saved. So Judges is about 12 people whom God raises up to save his people. Only, they're kind of odd, too. And in our text, we had a lefty, which was an odd person, because most people were right-handed, and a lady, because men did everything back then. So God used the foolish things of the world to confound or to put to shame the things that are wise, 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. So for us, we want to keep the gospel odd, because it is an arithmetic that confounds the devil. And so why do we go around trying to divide an odd gospel evenly, trying to make it cool, make it fit in with everything? We just need to embrace our oddity. The Missing Fourth Step The Book of Judges follows Israel going through a series of steps. I'm going to read it to you from Judges 3. This this is the first example of what we'll repeat throughout the book. We're listening for three steps here. Judges 3, verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So Israel is in the promised land. But the natives, the Canaanites who live there, already have a way of living. They already have gods. Israel comes in with a different god. Just one, not many. He has a different way of living for his people. They are not normal. They don't follow the status quo or the conventional culture of the Canaanites. And when they want to be normal, when they want to fit in... They start doing what the Canaanites do. So they begin to worship the Canaanite gods. They get off of God's plan, which is sin. And that's the first step we find them in. In Judges, Israel will sin. That's the first step. The second step is that they will suffer. And so, usually what would happen is a nation or a king would rise up and afflict the people with heavy taxes, tribute, taking their uh, their food, um, probably raiding villages. It was not a good situation. So they sin, then they suffer. So we read in Judges 3, verse 8, And the people of Israel served Kishan rishathaim Rishathaim means uh, doubly wicked. Kishan the doubly wicked. He was just one of their oppressors. Uh, they served him for eight years. Wow. So Israel would sin, and they probably would have kept doing that if they didn't suffer. So the sin produced suffering, which was God's grace to bring them back. Sin does that in life. Sin will give us consequences. Sin will be fun. You know the saying, it's fun for a season, just a season. And so Israel would then experience some suffering, something that was something that's really hard. So they cry out to God. So we see the third step in verse nine. But when the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. They sin, they suffer, then salvation. They're saved. That's the third step. And that's what the book of Judges is in a nutshell. It's a series. It's a cycle of Israel sinning, suffering, and getting saved. And each time that they sinned and suffered and they cried out, God would send a savior. What what the Bible calls Judges. And there's 12 of them in this book. And, you know, we go through this same cycle. We sin, we suffer, and we need a Savior. And Jesus is our Savior. He rescues us from our sins and our sufferings. So we can relate to this pattern. But why? Why does this pattern repeat? Why is it a cycle in the book of Judges? Why is their salvation not enough? Why do they have to keep on being saved? A better question is why do we do the same thing? Why do we need to keep on being saved from our sin and suffering? I'm not saying that Jesus didn't save you once and for all, because he did save you once and for all for from your sin. But why do we keep on going back to step one? Why do we repeat the cycle where once we're saved, we go back to sin and we, we bring suffering upon ourselves all over again and we cry out for deliverance all over again? Why do we go through the cycle just like Israel did? I propose it's because we are missing the fourth step. The fourth step after salvation needs to ask the question, what am I saved for? I know what I was saved from, but now let's look forward and ask, what am I saved for? What do I do now? Step four is service. We sin, we suffer, we're saved, and we serve our King. That is the way to stay out of repeating the cycle. And this fourth step is vitally important, especially today in the church. It seems like we're really good at getting people through steps one, two, and three, we get them to salvation, but we don't seem to get many people to step four. We have a lot of Christians who are saved, but then ask, so now what do we do? And we, we cause church and our Christianity and our way of life to be all about sustain step three, sustain your salvation, keep on feeling the good thoughts. And and we love it. We love these three steps. They produce amazing stories. I was once this, and I was down on my luck, but then Jesus saved me. And we tell those stories over and over and over. Sin, suffering, salvation. So much that we often don't think about or we neglect addressing the fourth step. We love the three steps because they're heartwarming stories, electrifying tales of God's salvation. And you don't need to look further than the book of Judges to see that. Judges is about amazing tales of salvation. These guys come in, and as we're going to see next week, Gideon comes in against impossible odds and delivers Israel. Samson's an amazing warrior. Ehud with his left hand and stabbing the king Eglon, and Deborah, the woman judge, the one woman, and all these surprising victories and salvation. And they're great stories, just like most of us have in the church. We hear some fantastic tales of salvation. But, sin, suffering, and salvation are not going to get us out of the cycle alone. At some point, we're going to feel like there needs to be more. And sustaining the feelings and the feel-good stories and the drama of our salvation is just impossible after a season and so, what happens is we tend to get uh Christian groups that over spiritualize our world so that we just try to keep everything nice and on the surface, everything's happy and and even though we're struggling with things or whatever we've got, but what we're still in in step three we're still saved, and what's really sad is when we insist that we are saved and in step three, yet we're living backward in the cycle, and we're in sin and suffering all over again, yet we insist because we feel like we have to stay in step three. That we're saved and that's it. And so we become hypocrites. Yeah, 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 I'm saved. Everything's good. But you're really in steps one and two and you're dying. But we don't feel like we can admit it because it seems so backward. This is not a healthy system. This cycle is going to kill us. And it's perhaps one of the reasons why future generations, the young generations looking at Christianity and saying, eh, it's just an option. It's not the way, the truth, the life. We need the fourth step. We need to be involved in service. We need to serve our King. We need to thank Him for our salvation and now put our experiences of sin and suffering and salvation into use. We need to pour those prior three steps into the fourth and give it to the world. Give it to a person. Give it to our families, our co-workers, our colleagues. We need to serve. That's why we were saved from sin and suffering. But, 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 you think, I have nothing to give. Friend, friend, If you have gone through steps one, two, and three, sin, suffering, and salvation, you have plenty to offer because you've suffered. You've seen what the world can be like. You have something to share. God, if he's truly saved you and has changed you, there's something you can do, even if it's as simple as taking trash out for people doesn't mean you have to become a pastor, a leader, a mentor. There should be someone in our lives that we can help out, even if it's in a little way like helping them clean out their garage, giving them rides to the doctor, whatever it is, listening to someone who has a lot of fear and anxiety on their heart and mind. You just put your salvation to the service of the world. That will help us from repeating the cycle over and over and over. Something I didn't get to say in um, the message, it was long enough as it was, but it's, it comes from the song that Deborah and Barak sing in Judges chapter 5. After their victory, they sing this song. Uh, it's in Judges 5, verse 26. They're retelling the story of their salvation. And this is what they sing. They sing she. This is JL. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Now, you might remember the story, right? Deborah is the judge, she's a prophetess, and she calls Barak to lead the armies of Israel against Sisera the general, the enemy armies, and they win. Sisera's on the run. He hides out in some Bedouin's tents. JL, she's the wife of the guy of the tent, and um, she welcomes him in. These Bedouins are on good terms with Sisera. He thinks he's saved. He goes into the tent. He asks for water. JL gives him a rug, puts him into bed, gives him some milk so he'd be a little, you know, his weariness would help him fall asleep. He's been in battle, he's weary, and the milk's going to help him just sleep soundly. So, there he is, on the ground, covered by a rug. Milk sleepy, war sleepy, he's out. And J.L. breaks the customs of hospitality. She grabs a tent peg and a hammer and strikes it straight through his temple and into the ground. Brutal. Graphic? Yeah. That's the odd way that God delivered Israel. But what can be easily overlooked here is that you've heard this story before. You've heard about a woman crushing the head of the enemy before. And if it's not ringing a bell at this point, let me take you there and refresh your memory. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and God was announcing all of the suffering that would come as a result of sin entering the world? He said this to the serpent, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. To the serpent, he's talking. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring And her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or another way to translate that, and I prefer this one, is you will crush his heel, he will crush your head. Does it sound familiar now? So what's happening? So the serpent, he's representing the the opposition against God. He's the devil. He's the representation of everything that's against God's way. Eve here is representing the people of God because, as we now know, it's through women that the Savior comes into the world. So the serpent and the woman... And their offspring, so all the people that are going to follow either side, they are going to have hostility with one another for a very long time. And often, the people of the women, those are God's people, they are going to go through some suffering. And indeed we do. We have sin, we have suffering. But the serpent will eventually be the one who receives the fatal blow. The very heel that he wounds will be the one that crushes his head. Let me read to you the passage of J.L. again in this song. Judges 5.26 She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Is that not good or what? Right there, the woman crushed the head of the serpent. A preview of another time when it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come, born of woman, Paul says, Galatians 4, 4, I think. Um, He's the offspring of the woman. Oh, Satan wounds him, all right. But through that wound, the very heel he crushes, that heel crushes Satan's head. Satan has been mortally wounded ever since. And here, JL is doing it. Here, she's crushing the enemy's head as a foreshadow of the coming Christ. But friends, there's something also happening here. This prophecy of the coming one from the woman who will crush the enemy's head is also giving us a lesson. See, you do have a step four to step into, service, Because if you've been through sin and suffering, then your heel has been wounded. You have been in conflict with the serpent. Here's the beautiful thing about steps three and four, salvation and service. Salvation is such that it takes our sin and our suffering and transforms. Forms them into something that will elevate us into service. I cannot be who I am without the mistakes of my past. And this is the odd way that God works, using the foolish things, the weak things, to put to shame the wise and the strong. See, your sin and suffering has bruised your heel but through that bruise, you will now crush the head of your monster and use it to step up into step four. That's what salvation does. Salvation crushes your sin's head so that you can use it to step up. So now your sin, rather than being this thing that keeps pulling on you and this plague of the past and this thing to be ashamed of, becomes the very thing you step up into step four with salvation enables you to look back at that and say, thank you for elevating me into service. It's because of the things I've suffered and the things I've gone through that makes me broken and able to come alongside those who are in sin and are suffering so that I can lead them to the savior so that I can serve them. This is the beautiful thing about having bruised heels and all of us have at least one bruised heel is that God saves you so that you can put that heel to the serpent's head and step into service. Now, there's so many ways this can happen. And I would hate to give you guys a carbon copy of here are the options, because all of us have unique experiences. First of all, your gifts are unique. But second of all, the suffering you've gone through is unique. You've been formed in ways that I haven't been formed, that your neighbor hasn't been formed, that your father, your brother, your sister haven't been formed. You need to know, where have I been? What is God doing? Now how can I step on the head of the serpent to serve others? What can I do? And it's often not a very complex answer. It's not, go start a harvest crusade, go be Billy Graham, go become a missionary, go learn to fly and fix airplanes, you can join the MAF. Those are great things, and you may be called to that, but that's not what it has to lead to. J.L. grabbed a tent peg and a hammer. Ehud didn't even have a knife, he had to make one. And he used the left hand that God gave him, because his right hand may have been crippled. Uh, Shamash, uh, uh, Shamgar, in uh Judges 3.31, he used an ox goad, it says, to kill 600 Philistines. An ox goad. Remember when Samson kills a bunch of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Okay, do you see what's happening in the book of Judges? These people that God is using are grabbing whatever is around them. They don't need some special, sophisticated tool. They're simply grabbing what is already in their life. And if we would open our eyes and pray that God would give us a way and show us, we would see the people he's already put in our lives, the programs he's already put in our lives, the situations, the context, the opportunities, the gifts and talents, And again, I always come back to people, the people that are there. How are you going to serve? So you've sinned, you've suffered, you've been saved. What are you going to do with what is around you right now to serve? If we don't step into step four, we could end up living tragic lives. Israel was God's chosen people, but they ended up in exile with the nation destroyed. In the Old Testament, at least. We, we believe that God still has a plan for Israel, of course. But using the Old Testament as the example, man, they had it rough. Remember, they were in Egypt. God had his own four-step plan for Israel. Step one, they were in Egypt. That was not a good situation, Then they went to the wilderness, which, by the way, was not a good situation either. Sin is not a good place, but the suffering it produces is even worse. The wilderness was a place of suffering and testing and trials. Israel often preferred, they said, take us back to Egypt now. Would you bring us out here into the wilderness to bury us? Was there no more graveyards in Egypt? Is that why we're here? It was rough. But see, It was the wilderness that was forming Israel into a people that can then move into phase three, the promised land. They went from Egypt to the wilderness to the promised land. And we saw that in the book of Joshua. As they enter the promised land, there's no more manna that stops because now they're eating the fruit of the land. A land described as flowing with milk and honey, which was a figure of speech to mean an abundance of crops and an abundance of cattle. The honey refers to the crops, the milk to the cattle, flowing with milk and honey. There is an abundance in this land. It's fruitful. It's fertile. You're going to live in cities you didn't build. You're going to reap from crops you didn't sow. You're going to drink from grapes that you, from, from vineyards that you didn't plant. It's a good place. It's like the Garden of Eden, the way it was fertile and it was good. It was a place of delight. This is the place of joy because God has finally brought us to his salvation. Goodbye, Egypt. Goodbye, wilderness. Hello, promised land. And that's where Israel still is in the book of Judges. They're still in the promised land. But this is the time for them to step into the fourth phase of service and do they they don't serve the canaanites they imitate the canaanites and thus they start the cycle all over they don't literally go back to egypt in the wilderness but they go into sin and suffering and needing to be saved all over again right there in the midst of the promised land that is miserable and yet that is how so many christians live they were asked to drive the Canaanites out, which was the option when the Canaanites did not want to worship Yahweh. Remember Rahab at the Battle of Jericho, how she was spared from destruction because she believed. She wanted to follow Yahweh. She wanted salvation. And Israel marches around Jericho seven days because they're offering a salvation. That was a model for us to see that God was not about annihilating all the Canaanites. He wanted to save them, but they refused. Now, we don't know if there were more Rahabs that responded, but as Israel is in the land in the book of Judges, and there's a few more of the natives still there, a few, few more Canaanites, God wants all men to come to repentance. And Israel had the opportunity to move into step four service and serve the Canaanites into loyalty and salvation toward Yahweh. They had that opportunity, but rather than serving the Canaanites, they thought, hmm, how can their culture, how can their gods, how can their way of doing things, how can their normalcy serve us? And that is when Israel went back through the cycle into sin and suffering and crying out for salvation. God designed, desired for Israel to go from promised land to the nations. Egypt, wilderness, promised land. And then we don't ever see it in the Old Testament, but they were then to go to the nations. That was their step four of service. They're saved. They're in the promised land. But now, let's go serve the nations. But they don't. Genesis 12. You'll remember how God calls Abraham. And he says this to Abraham... Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Phase four, serving, blessing. Yeah, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here's the key. And in you, all the families of the earth, Shall be blessed. Why did God choose Abraham and form a nation called Israel and liberate them from Egypt, take them through the wilderness and plant them in the promised land? Why did he do all that? So that from the promised land, they would grow in service out toward all the nations and bless the cursed earth. But Israel never stepped into that fourth phase. And as a result, they continued the cycle of sin and suffering and getting saved. It went beyond the book of Judges. It then turned into kings leading them. And then, finally and tragically, the exile, where the Babylonians destroy them without anyone to deliver them for a very long time. That's why we need step four. And Isaiah picked up on that, by the way. Isaiah looked at the nation and said, hey, hey, guys, we are in a bad way and we're in exile or we're going in exile. And so we need to enter into our ultimate calling to serve the nation's. And so Isaiah has a series of what, what scholars call the servant songs. There are four of these servant songs scattered throughout the latter part of Isaiah where he, the prophet is calling Israel to their true calling. At times the servant in these songs is Israel. It's plurality, but at times it's a person and it seems to be saying, Israel, you're meant to serve the world, but alas, you're not. So there's gonna come An individual who will be the servant. And he will serve the nations. He will bless the world. And that servant is Jesus. Now, you may remember these four servant songs because it was last, I think it was last Christmas. Yeah, it was in December 2017. At Advent, we did four messages one on each of these servant' songs, so if you if you miss those, you can go back on the podcast and listen and get them more in depth. but uh, these songs were calling Israel to be a servant because they never did step into that role. The first servant song is in Isaiah chapter forty two verses one through nine. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring justice, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. And it goes on and on, and it continues and says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Does that not sound like Jesus opening the eyes of the blind, bringing a light to the nations? And it's because of Jesus that the nations are blessed it's not just Israel anymore. as You remember from Ephesians, right? As Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 said, we, the mysteries that we were included in this whole thing. Yes. And then the second servant song is in Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verse 5, starting in verse 5. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's what the servant's going to do. He's going to bring a light to the nations. That's the role. The third servant song is in Isaiah 50, verse 4. And this is a this is a beautiful one. It, it kind of talks about how to become a servant. Um, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. What's the servant going to do? The servant's going to gain a tongue that can sustain the weary. How? Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. God will speak to us as we get up in the morning to seek him and listen to him. He will speak to us so that we will learn the words that sustain those who are weary. And then in chapter uh, 53, everyone knows this one, the suffering servant. This is the fourth song. This is the one that clearly points to Jesus. And this is the one where um, it describes, it really seems to be describing his crucifixion. And that's the point. That's how he served the world. But so Israel is called, because they're saved, they're called now to serve. They never do. And Isaiah, one of the last prophets, is calling them into service before the exile. He's calling them to service to the nations. They don't do it. And so they go way deep into this cycle all over again of sin and suffering and needing desperate salvation. 400 years pass at the close of the Old Testament and then the New Testament and Jesus enters as the final solution, right? The final salvation, I should say. Um, The final salvation. He is in a sense that 13th judge. He's going to come and deliver them. And not just them, he's going to do what Israel was always meant to do. He's going to bless the world. He's going to be a light to the nations. That's so why like Matthew's gospel, I can't remember right now which of the four servant songs, I think it's the first one, Matthew quotes that one and says, hey, this is Jesus. And, and portions of, of course, the fourth song, Isaiah 53, are quoted throughout the gospels. It's very clear that the New Testament sees Jesus as the servant who has come. Because we struggle to get to phase four. Jesus has done it. He's the one that pulls out of sin and suffering and brings us to salvation. And then if we follow him and live like him, we too can be servants like him. Egypt, the wilderness, the promised land, the nations. Where are you living right now? And will you go to the next phase? So now that you're saved... What are you gonna do? And now for a preview of Judges chapter 6 through 8. These three chapters cover what's probably the second most famous judge, Gideon. Of course, Samson's the most famous. But Gideon and Samson both make it into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. So they're both pretty significant. Um, Two others, by the way, who make it in are Deborah and Jephthah. So those are four. Four of these strange judges make it into the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Friends, there is hope for you. Yes. Now remember, there are 12 judges in the book of Judges. Six are minor, which simply means that there's not a lot said about them. We just don't know what they did. We just know they delivered Israel. Six are considered major. So the six major ones, basically it says they give us a little more detail, are Othniel in chapter three. That's where we get the, the cycles described right there the first time. Uh, we have Ehud, the left-handed guy who killed uh, Eglon. Deborah, the female one, right? Uh, then this one, Gideon. And then fifth is Jephthah. He will be the next major player. Um, you'll see him in chapters tw- 10 through 12. And then, finally, Samson, the last judge. And, of course, he's the most famous. Uh, so those are the six. We'll be looking at Gideon. I don't know how much of chapter 6-8 through eight I'll actually be going through on Sunday. It's quite a lot to talk about. I may stick with the positive, to be honest. Gideon starts off really well. And ends pretty poorly. Um, when I say he starts off really well, it's... It's relative. It's well considering how he ends. He starts off hiding in a wine press. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Like, often what you do is you have the wheat and the chaff and you would have to separate them. One of the ways that ancient people did it was putting on a blanket, throwing it up in the air and letting the wind blow the chaff away so the wheat, the grains, just fall down the blanket and now you have clean grain to cook with. He's doing this in a wine press. Why? Well, he's hiding from the enemy whom we are told is taking all of Israel's food. That's that's the suffering of the sin cycle is that they're in deep oppression. They're hungry. It's so desperate to hide their food that they're trying to sort out the chaff from the wheat in caves and dens uh, and wine presses. That's how bad it's gotten. And Gideon, um, many people poke fun at him like he's a coward um, because he's doing this. Uh I'm pretty sure it was just smart to keep your food to do this in a wine press. However, it is still fair to call him a coward because, uh, the theme of being afraid is going to come up in this. And Gideon does seem to be a bit cowardly, um, which is why I think I'm going to call this message a cowardly lion. So a cowardly lion. So in Judges, we're looking at oddities, how God uses the odd things in the world. Um, so last week we saw a lefty and a lady. This week we're going to see a cowardly lion. Gideon is a coward. Yet, yet, God sees not just a coward. God sees a lion. God sees there's something in this odd man that I can use. And it's so great to know that God looks at the true self within us. The one that he made in his image. And for Gideon, that's a lion. The world sees a coward. Gideon himself sees a coward. Who am I that you're choosing me? I'm of, I'm the, the least in my family, which is the least of the tribes of Israel, right? He sees a coward. He sees someone insignificant. God says, hey, oh man of valor, I've chosen you. Yeah, God sees the lion, I just love that. And I I, maybe that will be developed. I'm not really sure. I'm just... Kind of the way I begin with the process is I read it like you guys, and then I'm just kind of amassing things that stick out to me, things I'm seeing, things God's speaking. And um, usually the goal is not to go up and just say all of that stuff, just kind of scattered everywhere. Usually I try to bring a a selection of things together so it says something, right? Something that grips our heart and calls us to transformation. So, um, you know, that's why... We have B-sides sometimes like, hey, I didn't get to say this, or here's some more thinking on this, or didn't have time for this, or whatever. Um, So yeah, I'm not exactly sure where it's going. I just, I'm pretty sure we're going to call it the Cowardly Lion and look at those aspects of Gideon. So it's kind of ironic and humorous in the beginning, how he's kind of in this place where everybody in Israel's afraid, and Gideon's afraid too, and then God shows up to him, and it says in Gideon 6.12, the angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, "Please, sir, if Yahweh is with us, then why is all this happening to us? You know, what about all those great stories of old we heard? It just—I um, want to actually. What I want to do is I want to point out some, uh, just some observations. So as you're reading, you can like, oh yeah, okay, I see that too. Uh, you can pray about those things because maybe I'm not going to touch on them at all in the message. Um, and then you can add your own observations. What are things God's showing you in the text?" So, um, here we go. I just have them written down. I don't even have them, uh, the verse number next to them. So I may not be able to find it, but you're going to be reading through it. So, uh, that was the first one, by the way. My first observation was the irony. I just, I just like seeing things like that. It's just the scene just sets up so comically. It's like, <laughs> here's this coward and God's like, ah, lion. And you're like, what? I don't see it yet. But that, that is life. That is life, friends. God sees something in you you don't see yet and many others don't see yet. So we gotta to listen to him. He knows how to get the lion out of us. So sometimes we're gonna kick and scream when he asks us to do something that's really hard and scary. But he's doing it because you're a lion inside. Um, that was, by the way, my second observation. God sees a lion where others see a coward. Third observation is anger anger. Yeah. So Gideon is said, God says, hi to him, man of valor. He's like, please, sir, if Yahweh is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now that's quite an accusation, right? Like, where have you been, God? You do nothing like our ancestors said. You've abandoned us. If you're God, you're probably going to give a response. You're probably going to defend yourself. Probably going to give all kinds of excuses or reasons, They're like, "Well, oh, I've been doing things you just aren't noticing," or, "Well, I can't do anything if nobody believes in me here." You know, you probably say some snarky in reply. Look how God answers Gideon in verse 14. And Yahweh turned to him and said, "Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you?" Did you hear, were you listening carefully? Go in this might of yours. What might, he's thinking. You might be thinking. He's talking about Gideon's anger. Where have you been? It's not there. You are not showing. You've abandoned us. That might, Gideon. Go in that might. Use that anger to deliver Israel. And see, this is what I also love about God. He looks at our emotions. He looks at our quirks, our oddities, our flaws, and he says, I can use that. He doesn't tell Gideon to let go of his anger before you can be served by me. He doesn't put him into this temperamental management class. Now that you're a a more well-behaved chap, you can serve me. He's calling him right into service, and he's saying, Gideon, I can use that temper of yours. And instead of using it against others, I'm going to use it to serve Israel. You are going to be their savior. So Gideon, let's channel that anger off of yourself and your self-pity and onto the enemy. See, anger really is a deep drive to do something that's where it comes from. We see that the world's not right, or something's not right in our lives. That's what produces the anger. And the anger says it's not right, it should be right. That's what it's coming from. So when used well, anger sets the world right. Many people actively involved in social justice are actually deeply angry at the world. You may not think of them as angry people because they're using their anger to change the world rather than harm the world. And God picks up on Gideon's anger and says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel. Oh, irony, the lion within the coward, anger. Fourth observation, 300. In the spiritual life, less is more. The lion emerges when we shed the weight that buries it. Okay, there's 135,000 Midianites. Gideon has, uh, let me go double check the numbers, 30-something thousand soldiers. 32,000. God's like, 32,000 versus 135,000. Yeah, the odds aren't very good, are they? Israel, you need to shed some what? We need less? Yeah, you need less. So God basically says, if anybody's afraid, leave now. Two-thirds of the army leaves. Gideon must feel depleted. And then Gideon's looking and going, oh no, what am I going to do with only 10,000 men? And then God turns to him and says, oh no, there are way too many. What are we going to do with 10,000 men? <laughs> oh, the irony in this story is all over the place, isn't it? So God tells Gideon, too many narrow it down. So they narrow it down to 300. How? God takes them to uh, a spring of water. And depending on how they drink the water, they're divided. Some uh, cup the water in their hands and bring it to their mouths. Others bend their bodies down to the water and uh, slurp it up. I don't know that God cared about which way they did it. Uh Oh, I'm getting into my fifth observation. You can tell I'm really organized with this preview. Uh Yeah, well okay, we'll just combine it. So 300 and water. So uh how do we get to the 300 to the water? And the water is, I don't think that God cared about which way they drank. Sometimes we make a big deal about what is right to do in the world and what's the right way to do this and the wrong way to do that. And sometimes it's just preference. It's, hey, I'm a different person than you, okay? I I don't go out of my way to get into people's business, but you do. Okay, great. You have this gift to go into people's lives and make change. I have this gift of waiting for it to come to me and then being available when it does. Whichever it is, people just have to, I don't know if either's right or wrong. Both have pros and cons to each his own. and same thing with the water, to each his own. God was not looking for one style over another. I don't think so. I don't think he was looking for the ones that brought the water to their mouths with their hands and said, whoever does that is the ones I'm going to choose. No, because we don't see God telling Gideon which ones will be in his army until after they've drunk and the numbers have been seen. That's when God said, okay, the ones who brought the water to their mouth, those are the ones I'm going to use. The rest go home. Why those? Because there's only 300 of the 10,000 in that camp. God waited to see which one was the smallest camp and picked them. So this is how our odd God likes to work. Smaller, smaller, smaller. And sometimes we don't like that. It feels like things are getting, we're getting squeezed a bit. Things are getting shaved off. And we feel like there's nothing left. Friend, that's the point. That is precisely what God's doing. He's trying to shave everything off until all that's left is your true self. Not the self you try to be for everybody else or think you need to be to make your dad happy or to please your critics. Not that self. That self is the outer self, the inner self, the true self, the one that the spirit of God resides in. That's what God's trying to get at. So he's eliminating until the coward becomes a lion. Uh, last observation. Odd. God not only wants a smaller army, but they don't even hold swords. Oh, <laughs> that's so good. Okay, so already it's kind of odd. Like God is um, whittling this army down, which is not what any general really does, especially to this degree—three hundred against one hundred thirty-five thousand. That's odds of four hundred and fifty to one, if I remember right. I wrote that down somewhere. These four hundred and fifty to one—that's bad odds. So yeah, right there, that's odd. But second, it's like Hunger Games, right? May the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> Yeah, they're not with Israel, but they have God on their side. Um, But the other thing is that, okay, now he sends these 300, and not one of them is carrying a sword in their hand. You know what they're carrying? One hand, they're carrying a torch with a jar over it. And in the other hand, they're carrying a trumpet. And you're going to battle like that? Yeah, they're going to battle like that. Oh, Yeah, Judges is about God using the odd things to put to shame normalcy. Because conventional culture, though there's a lot of wisdom in it and we live a lot of it, it's not all right. The gospel is different, and God saves in mysterious ways. So don't give up on that person you're praying for. Don't give up on entering phase four and being a servant. God's going to do things in ways you didn't expect. Uh, That's all I have for this preview. I hope you guys enjoy reading about Gideon. Um, uh, If you want to go into chapter 9 as well, you can see his son and the mess that came out of Gideon's ending poorly. Then his son lives poorly. So 9 kind of, if you want to end it on a very depressing note, just keep on reading. Um, And then you get into Jephthah a a bit later. Um, And we'll talk about him later. This is Pastor Brandon. Thank you for listening. Grace and gratitude.